Hello and welcome to season two of the Global Citizenship and Equity podcast. Now I've had a long break since season one, but let me tell you, I really needed it. But I am really excited to be back and to talk about the first episode of this new season. It features Naomi Raquel Onright, who is a beautiful author who resides in Brooklyn, New York. She's an equity practitioner, an educator, author. And what's great about her book, Strength of Soul, is that it looks at white supremacy, white privilege, colorism, racism in the United States from a perspective that is rarely explored. And um, while I have seen here and there um, thought leaders that have questioned the notion of, of this color system in the United States, I don't think I've seen anybody question it in the way that this author does. Um, and so I, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I, I certainly enjoyed um, doing this interview with this author and um, enjoy. This book was born out of profound change and profound gain and profound loss. And it's intertwined with racism and identity precisely because my father was a Jewish American, a white Jewish American man. And my husband is white of Irish and German ancestry. And our son um, was born looking white. I mean, he looks entirely European to the naked eye um, and or European ancestry. Um, and in his infancy, I was adjusting to the fact that no one ever believed that he was my child and that I was consistently assumed to be his caretaker or asked what my role was in this infant's life. And I only shared my son with my father for less than a year. My father died just two days before Sebastian, my son's first birthday. And so for me, adjusting to the world without my father's physical presence and without his voice and his worldview and his advice about how to raise this child in the midst of this country, as well as my interests. I've always had this passion for examining identity and understanding racism, understanding white supremacy, understanding anti-Blackness. And so the process of writing it ended up actually being quite cathartic. I was really able to dive into my experience as a mother and my experience with losing my father. And I also wrote it for my son, as I say, right? I dedicated to him because my son will never know my father. And so for me, this book is also a way of giving my father to my son and having my son have an understanding of this man who was so crucial to his own existence and who was deeply loved and respected and admired by me, his mother. It's a gift ultimately to my child. It was bomb for my soul in, in processing and continuing, which I think is a continual process to live in the world without my father's physical presence. You say that inherent difference amongst mm -hmm. human beings based on skin color does not exist, but that white supremacy, anti-blackness and systemic racism do exist in the US. Mm -hmm. And and this is this is a profound thing to say, right? In some ways it's a very complicated point. And then in others it's also very simple. But part of what also led to this position that I hold was the work I was doing. So when when Sebastian was born, I was a full-time Spanish teacher. And as a Spanish teacher, I had, throughout my time teaching, connected with my students the how language and identity are connected, how they are 
you know, intertwined. And I would have my students all the time examine how the language that we speak or the languages that we speak uh, influence our sense of self. They influence our worldview. We might shift our own personalities depending on the language that we're using. They would often point out to me that I was different when I spoke Spanish as opposed to when I speak English. They would say I was nicer when I spoke Spanish. <laughs> um, but I began to think a lot about language and how powerful language is. And because of the experiences I was having as a mother, I began to delve more deeply with my students into conversations around identity and around racism and difference. And these were always things that I examined with my students. It was all part of my curriculum as a teacher. Um, and that led to my wanting to have that be more the focus of my work. And so I left the Spanish language classroom and I became an equity practitioner. And Throughout my shift of becoming an equity practitioner, I began to take notice of how often the language that we use to challenge white supremacy, systemic racism, and anti-Blackness, in fact, adhere to and corroborate the very ethos of those systems. And so the ethos of whiteness as an inherent um, privilege, whiteness as an inherent protection, um, and as inherent power. Is there a way that we can challenge not only the systemic inequities that exist throughout the institutions in our society, but the, the very way we present the issues and the history of it all to our children and to our students. And it's a very complex place to be in some ways because it has been weaponized to actually deny systemic inequities. And so I'm very sensitive to that. But I also know that if we wish to envision a future where, um, Whiteness does not translate to automatic protection, power, and privilege, and Blackness and Brownness don't translate to automatic disenfranchisement or marginalization or um, criminalization, then we have to rewrite the narrative of who we are as a society and who we are as a people. Um, and I think that specifically in terms of my own son, that if I don't teach my son about the very ideologies that brought these systems forth and that protect him by virtue of his appearance and that um, don't protect me by virtue of mine, then I'm not actually teaching him to, to create change and to be um, an agent of change. And for me, that, that feels paramount. I mean, it feels paramount as a mother for certain, but I think it should be paramount for the future of our country and for the future of our democracy and of making it a truly equitable society. And it's also, it's also self-preservation. I mean, I feel like if I don't teach my son in this way, then I'm allowing my own devaluation and I'm allowing my own erasure. And I won't stand for that. You know, I feel like that's just not going to happen while I'm breathing. And I want him to have a full sense of where he comes from, a full sense of who he personally is, and then in turn be able to understand who others are, as I say in the preface, in totality, right? All these pieces of what make us who we are and the experiences that we have, where we grew up, the languages that we speak, the friends that we've had, the places we've traveled, et cetera, and use all that, channel all that to, in his own way, you know, he'll make his choices for his life, but in his own way, a challenge systemic racism and white supremacy and anti-Blackness. Yeah. So the, the totality of who we are, I love that. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think very often we become single stories, uh, yeah. we become a monolith in this white supremacy system. And so I love that, just hearing that. So one of the things that also stood out to me in the book and, and having conversations with you about this is, is your mother. Um, because I, I am an immigrant, just like your mother, and I probably hold a lot of the same perspectives and beliefs your mom has. So talk about your mother and what 
she means by her term colorless. Are there more layers to this that readers might be missing? Sure. Um, so colorless is a term or a word that my mother has chosen to um, use. And it's not colorblindness. It's not pretending that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're X, Y, or Z color. It's about not attaching value to skin color and not either devaluing based on your tone, skin tone, or elevating. And she's very specific about this because, and she's very specific about not emphasizing our difference in skin tone to Sebastian, because she feels that that is a, a key ingredient to maintaining the status quo and to maintaining inequity. And so this is sort of her term that she's come up with, that she sees herself as colorless. And, and by that meaning, she sees herself as a full, human being worthy of respect and value based on just being who she is. It's like, I don't need to prove anything to you or, or even sort of uh, mm, change your mind about who I am. And so I think this, it does come from her not growing up in the society. You know, she, she grew up in Ecuador. My mother's from Ecuador. From Guayaquil. And, you know, thanks to colonialism, white supremacy and anti-blackness and racism are a global issue, right? This is not something that's only, you know, specific to the United States, but I will say that it manifests differently and is conceived of differently and is discussed differently depending on the part of the world that you're in. And I think that in Latin America, it's also very much tied into class. And my mother grew up in a middle-class family, educated middle-class family. Her mother was a professional until she uh, chose to raise her four children. My grandfather was professional. My mom got um, a scholarship to come study in the States at Tulane. So they're an educated family with, with privilege. And so my mother, I think, has that background to be able to come to this position and to hold this position and to be very adamant about it. I don't think I can feel wholly the same because I did grow up in the United States and this is my home and it's all I've known in truth. I mean, I've gone to Ecuador um, many times over the course of my life, but my education, everything took place here in the States. And so I've been very much acculturated here. And so I wouldn't say I am holding the same place as my mother, but I do think that her perspective and her position helped me to frame what I think and why I think the way I do and the ways that I want um, Sebastian to, to grow up and to absorb these messages himself. Um, so I hope that explains what she means by colorless. And again, it does not mean colorblindness. <laughs> yeah, if I could dive into this a little more, the whole colorblind mm -hmm. argument really has, I think, come a lot from more conservative argument or thought leadership. And while I think some of these more conservative or centrist thinkers mm -hmm. have talked about this, talked about colorblindness and all of that, it's really not addressed and been in denial that systemic racism exists. So what I think is special about your book is that it does address this color system and how mm -hmm. it's just structured to oppress. It's structured to be anti-Black. It's structured to, to do all these things. What I got from the book was thinking in this colorless way is dismantling that system. Yeah, to an extent, I absolutely think so. Because for me, the flip of colorblindness, which is absolutely not a solution at all, is color consciousness. And color consciousness is what allows people to 
make the judgments that they do about my family and dismiss the role I have in my son's life and even to dismiss the role my father had in my and my older brother's lives right it's a way of attack like skin color equating affinity that is also problematic right I don't think that white children should be learning that everyone who's white has something automatically in common with them by virtue of being the same or similar skin tone and I don't think that black and brown children should be learning that either because I feel that it then um it erases the whole piece of, you know, multiplicity and, you know, the intersectional ways that we exist in the world. And But it also, it, it, it perpetuates the system as it was meant to be. It was meant to divide. It was meant to um, unfairly elevate or privilege or empower. And then by the same token, you know, unfairly disadvantage and marginalize. And so I don't want my son thinking that by virtue of his skin color, he uh thinks a certain way or needs to behave a certain way. And granted, I'm very sensitive to the fact that my son's experience is very different from a lot of white people's in this society, <laughs> right? Like there's no denying that, right? He's bilingual, he's gone to Ecuador now. And so his experience is much more that like my own was growing up because he is presumed to be white. There is a narrative that is attached to him that I find deeply problematic and I find it to perpetuate the system as it was meant to stand. Because people are always telling me how lucky I am. I don't have to worry for him in the ways I would for a black or brown son or daughter for that matter. And I find that deeply disconcerting because I think, why are we accepting that? Why should we accept that as okay? I don't accept that my son is quote unquote, inherently more protected. I know that he's more protected and I think that's the problem. I don't want him to grow up in a world or to inherit a world where that's the case and where that will be and it has been. And I don't see why we have to allow that to be the case for another 400 years. It hasn't worked and it's dehumanizing in various ways. And I wish for an absolute paradigm shift in terms of the ways that we challenge systemic inequities and the ways that we talk about racism and identity. Sharing a little bit of my personal experience and how it mirrors yours, I had the experience of, you know, taking my little baby down the street with a stroller and people also think immediately thinking that I am the caregiver or the, you know, the nanny and, and, and this sort of the same conversations that, that you've been having with people, right? And and being an immigrant, you know, of East Asian as well as Southeast Asian descent, right? Having to sort of think about living in this color system, mm. you know, moving from a country that had its own system, right? It takes time as an immigrant to sort of adjust to the fact that, okay, historically, someone like me was considered a particular color, yellow. Right. And then seen as a racist term. And so... Right now then, okay, then now brown, right? And right. then what exactly that means in terms of social status. And then I had to rethink all of this as a parent, because now I have this child who is of, of mixed descent and having to think about, okay, what does this mean for me as a parent? So I think, I think right. your book really reflected a lot of my experiences. And that's why I was so excited to interview you yeah, a little bit great. more. For readers and for the audience who, that may not understand the history of this color system, I wonder if you can just give us <laughs> a little bit of a teaching or, or a little bit of a history around how whiteness came to be in the U.S. What is this melting pot? You know, share sure. with us. I mean, it's complicated, right? Because I think that there are many moments in our history where certain European immigrants were not considered white. And that began to shift specifically and more commonly after World War II, right? And so these enclaves, particularly in New York, let's say, where you had German immigrants and you had Polish and you had Irish who had served in the war to sort of maintain this white supremacist system, they were, as I 
frame it, invited into the fold of whiteness. And Black soldiers who had, who had served as well remained disenfranchised and marginalized. And I think that <clears throat> that was intentional. And I think that there's always been an intentionality in maintaining whiteness as wholly separate from everyone else in the society and as holding power by virtue of their white. And then even further back, if you look back at, you know, during slavery and figuring out, you know, once enslavers began to more often than not assault their, you know, enslaved women and children were, you know, born of these, of these, you know, unions, if they can call it that, who were ambiguous. Right. It's like you have these lighter skinned enslaved children. And what do you do with these lighter skinned enslaved children, some of whom probably looked more European in their physicality than the African. And so you then have what is known as the one drop rule and the one drop rule, meaning that if you have any known African ancestry, regardless of your appearance, you are considered black. And that was further codified in our census and our laws with terms like mulatto, which meant, which comes from mule, right? Which is half, was a half donkey and half, uh, I forget, but it's not, right? It's the, 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 from two different species, right? So mulatto meaning half black, half white, and then uh, quadroon, quadroon meaning that one out of four grandparents um, is African or of African ancestry, and octoroon, one out of eight. And these were actually codified, right? These were official terms that were used to maintain the status quo of, of white supremacy. And even though those have shifted a lot. Ultimately, whiteness is always um, in opposition to, right? And and it's sort of inviting others, you know, European immigrants over time, Italians, even though there was a discussion most recently about Middle Easterners and whether or not they would be considered Asian or white on the census. And my, so to me, there's, it's, it's such a deep rooted belief system and one that has influenced all aspects of our society and our culture. And so, in my mind, of course, it will take a long time to dismantle this kind of ideology and, and language. But I think if we don't begin to truly do that, and particularly with children and with schools, we are forever trapped in this vicious circular cycle. And we're actually maintaining the system as it was meant to exist, right? It was meant to empower whiteness. And I can't, I don't see how that, how moving forward, and this is long after I'm gone, how moving forward that we can maintain it as it's been, right? I think that we have seen one too many times through the course of American history, how this is not functioning. And here we are in this current moment in this country, you know, the insurrection of January 6th, which to me is in some ways, not, not a culmination, but an absolute reflection of, of this ideology and this, this divisive and dehumanizing way of um, thinking about each other. And it, it deeply disturbs me because I think those many of these people who believe that white people are superior, think of my son, who I brought forth as more worthy and more valuable than me, right? Than his own mother or his family on my side, his maternal family. And I think that's deeply unsettling because it's clearly about the lie. It's the lie of, of skin color as definer, as affinity, as similitude, and as holding value or holding more or less value. Oh, gosh, you know, I the whole notion of a white identity is so baffling. I mean, when we look at the history, I mean, you can't you can't even really say that it means of European descent because mm -hmm. 
someone Irish and Italian, they weren't necessarily allowed. They weren't allowed in this melting pot in the beginning, but then they were later, right? Exactly. And then, and then we have terms like white passing, and and I'm like, so it doesn't really mean an ethnicity. It means something else, right? Well, you made me think of an essay that James Baldwin, who's one of my heroes, wrote in I believe 1984. I believe it was 1984, and it's called "On Being White and Other Lies." And he, in that essay, examines how the concept or the belief that there can be a white community or that there, a white community exists is anathema to challenging anti-Blackness and white supremacy and systemic racism, right? Like he, throughout his writings, in my view, is consistently fighting against a whiteness as, as a definer and as, you know, sort of the sense of community, right? That you, you can, you know, because what is it based on? And, and ultimately it is based on a lie. It's based on the lie of, of inherent racial difference based on skin color. I mean, I find white terms like white passing also strange. I mean, I even for my son, I went through sort of an evolution of how to describe him. And I finally landed upon, and maybe it'll change again, but I landed upon presumed to be white because I think it lies outside of him. Right, what people see and what they assume of his identity is not necessarily who he is, and I think that's the case for all of us, right? I mean, I'm I'm presumed to be a whole bunch of things. Like people see me and think that I'm Latina, they might think that I'm Middle Eastern, they might think that I'm um, Black American, they might think that I'm Brazilian, right? I feel like people see so they see what they know ultimately is what I've come to realize, and I think to myself, but rarely are they right. Rarely are they actually correct in their assumption of how I identify. Um, and what my experience has been and who I am. So presumed to be white felt appropriate to me. So, um, <laughs> you know, you're an educator and you talk a lot about educating children about this, right? How do you think the education of children could change in this country when it comes to our racialized system? I think it has to change profoundly. And I think one of the things that has to absolutely change is the teaching of our history, even things like the one drop rule, right? And how so many people grow up in this country and never heard of that or don't know it or don't know how it's actually still in place. Even if it's not official, it's still culturally true. So I think that history and knowing our history and acknowledging our history and being transparent about our history is um, crucial. But then I also think, as I examine in the book, that the language we use to talk about racism needs to also shift. And so, so often I've, I've been in spaces where terms like race is real are said or a phrase like that, you know, be like, we know race isn't real, you know, that we're not, you know, biologically different, but it is real because of the way the system functions, right? And I think that is circular. It's, it's not, in fact, um, helpful. Or productive. And so I think we have to be very clear in saying that inherent racial difference is a lie, that we are not inherently different from each other based on our appearance or physical appearance, specifically our skin tones, but that the systemic inequities that exist in our uh, institutions, in our society, from schools to hiring, you know, to housing, to you know, medical field, everything, is deeply impacted by those systems, right? So it is deeply impacted, right? Like my son's experience roaming through the world based on his experience will be different from what mine was or what his uncle's, my brother's was, or his cousin, right? My nephew, who's uh, brown skinned, but that's not because of the skin that he's in. It's because of the system that we've created. And so we have to shift the mindset and the language in order to also begin to tackle the systemic inequities. I feel very adamant about that. And I do not claim to know how that can be done 
you know, across the board, right? I'm specifically in schools, but I do know that that's a great place to start, right? I think that if children are having these conversations very transparently and honestly about the system as well as who they are and how they identify and what their experience is, I think they're much better equipped to, to understand the equities, to abhor them and to wanna change them, right? I mean, my son is deeply upset to know that I have had experiences I've had, that people make the assumptions they do about me. He feels, I think, as he gets older, he's now 10, he feels, I'm not sure guilt's the word, but I think he feels a sort of uh, discomfort with knowing that people will treat me and say things to me differently than they would to him or his father. And to me, that's a good place to be, right? It's like, you don't, you, you want all children to be like, that is unacceptable. Like that should not be the case. You know, I should not be roaming the world more easily than my own mother right? Or then my best friend or whatever it is, my teacher. And then I also think it's about exposure, right? And knowing that there are different ways of being in the world, right? I think that, you know, my parents chose to raise me and my brother in New York, and I'm thankful for that every day. You know, I feel like New York is a, was a wonderful place to grow up. It was a place that I was exposed to all sorts of different languages and cultures and foods and uh, mindsets, you know, in a way that I think better prepared me to think more holistically about who people are. And I think that that is sadly not the case for many people in this country. I think many people in this country, regardless of their skin color, grow up in homogeneous environments and they really can't grasp what it means to be necessarily of a different way in the world. I mean, I talk about it in the book that my husband didn't have a teacher uh, a black or brown teacher until high school, maybe college. And that's very foreign from the experience I had, right? And it's foreign from the experience my son has. I mean, his school that, the elementary school that he uh, attends, the administration is um, nearly all black and brown. And to me, that's a beautiful thing, right? Because I feel like he's seeing these individuals, I mean, they're women, um, in positions of power. And to him, that's that's normal, that's the way it should be, right? As opposed to only seeing white men uh, holding positions of power and having a say. And that was intentional, right? And it's intentional as we think about his schooling moving forward, you know, how can he be in environments where he's seeing the world as it should be, right? You're not just seeing white people in power and black and brown people pushing the broom, right? Like even what happened in, you know, on January 6th was emblematic of that, right? That the people cleaning up after the insurrection were primarily black and brown people, right? Mm -hmm. And so I feel that that intentionality has to start early and it has to start um, with a very clear understanding that we can't perpetuate the lie of inherent, racial difference. We really have to stop perpetuating that lie and that it's, it's, it's not true. I mean, it's, it's not true. And we continue to acknowledge that it's not true, but we function as if it is. And so to me, you can't have it both ways, right? We have to acknowledge and then function differently, right? That's how I, I feel very adamant about that. And I hope that it can begin, right? I mean, I feel like this is going to be a long time to undo and I don't like claim to, you know, say this is the only solution, but I do think it's one of the solutions. And I, I know that, you know, in my borrowed time on this planet, I'm doing what I can to be part of that movement. And I think I've, I'm certainly having influence on my own son, but I've also had it in the classrooms I've been a part of. You know, I would talk this way with my students when I was still teaching full-time after Sosian was born. Going back to your book, okay, so suppose we woke up tomorrow mm -hmm. and this racialized racist system was completely dismantled. 
what is the ideal transformed kind of world that you envision? Like, what would it look like if we dismantled everything? When well, it comes, to I think that there are many answers to that question, and I think it depends on you know different sort of the, the context, but. One thing I really would love to see, if I could, is twofold. One where there is not value attached to different skin color, and one where a world where being white does not, or being presumed to be white, does not automatically put you in um, a more privileged position. I feel that that is hugely problematic, and that's for me in some ways was, was it, is the catalyst for all of this, right? Because to know that my son by virtue of his appearance is more privileged and more protected and more empowered than I am and then all the other black and brown people that he knows and loves are is unacceptable, right? I think there's no reason for that. There's no reason for that to be the case other than right acceptance of, of the power structures as they were originally put in place. And so to me, an ideal world is one where that's not the case and where we hold you know, we pursue, we want to pursue in terms of our interests and our passions and, you know, positions we're going to hold in our work. And there's a mixture of it all, right? That you're seeing women and you're seeing black people, and you're seeing brown people, and you're seeing white people, and there's no attachment to what that signifies, right? That's like, you simply are X person holding X position in X industry, right? Because you care about it and you have something to offer and people want to learn from you, whatever it is. And so I think, um, that would be an ideal world. And I know that we are far, far, far from that ideal world. But I also know that, I mean, something I've read that I loved was it's called, was dubbed imaginative labor. And I loved it because I think we we function within the, within the reality that we have and the world in which we live, but we also work toward the world we hope to see or hope to have our children or, or you know, descendants inherit or future generations inherit. And so that's what this is to me, right? I think that this is imaginative labor for me. And I am fully aware of the fact that I will not see a cataclysmic shift in my lifetime. I highly doubt it anyway. But I also know that I want to be a part of working toward that being the case someday. Um, and maybe be a world that my son will know, maybe be a world that, you know, uh, future generations later on even will know. But I hope that it will exist because I think that if we tap into all these approaches, we can really make this country a phenomenal place to exist and to be. That's what I would hope for. <laughs> And that was season two's first episode featuring Naomi Raquel on right, wonderful author. There are many ways to support this podcast or participate. You can click on the link below and offer a donation or subscribe. Um, you can tell your friends all about it, share it on social media. You can also provide me with feedback or let me know what you think or feel from the episode. And I look forward to hearing and connecting with anyone who wants to. Take care. Bye-bye.